Namaste everyone. Welcome to Vidura Watch podcast for another interesting episode. Most of us know the name of the ruler Samrat Prithviraj Chauhan and also know about him as a great king and many of his exploits in the northern India. However, some of the events in his life can be considered as legends and are debatable when it comes to its historicity. To dispel those and to provide a factual narrative of this great king We have with us today Shri Virendra Singh Rathod ji. By profession he is an IT professional but his passion also lies in history too which has been a part of him which he keeps pampering to. Welcome Virendra ji. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me tonight. I would also like to add that Virendra ji has also written a commendable book on Prithviraj Chauhan which goes by the name of uh, Prithviraj Chauhan a light on the mist in history. which can be accessed and purchased from uh, Amazon and other e-commerce websites the book was first published on 27th march 2020 and has garnered amazing reviews from the re- readers so i request my listeners to please please get this book asap so sir for the starters can we know like you know before going into the history or, or the history of prithviraj chauhan can we know what are the origins of rajputs who are rajputs from where they you know came from i'll i'll start with the etymology mm-hmm. that, that that's where we should begin with i believe because th- that's where uh, people generally start you know with the literal meaning so if you look at the word rajput it's an apabhrash or uh, what do we mean by apabhrash uh, basically when you shift from ancient to the medieval ages there came a phase where uh, the grip of uh, sanskrit grammatical rules was uh, loosening so as part of that effect whatever changes came in the prevailing languages that effect is known as uh, apabhrash so the the uh, rajput word is an apabhrash of rajputra that's the original sanskrit word okay so uh, having said that uh, so w- when you read the word literally rajputra is a conjunction of uh, raj and putra so yeah. that gives you two yeah. concepts so the two concepts are royalty from raj and lineage from putra okay so the view in mainstream uh, and i'd say a bit misinformed view is that rajputra only means son of a king or a prince okay but if you go through our ancient literature starting from the the brahmanas of uh, rigveda uh, atri and tetri all these uh, right from there you keep going consistently tap into ramayana tap into mahabharat tap into upanishads like uh, katha upanishad then uh, uh, this uh, these pali texts which were written after the demise of uh, gautam buddha then you come to the uh, gupta era inscriptions so this whole history is full of examples where you'll see the word rajputra being used interchangeably for kshatriya and not just for princes not even just for some very important uh, dignitaries or state officials yeah you would even see messengers and individuals of salaried class in the military and administration uh, to have been called rajputra okay so in a way the origin of rajputs is the same as the origin of kshatriyas uh, because i mean as far as the north north of india is concerned that that half 
these terms are interchangeable or synonyms the reason why i'm mentioning or emphasizing on this is that uh, this this small nuance of two terms being in currency rajput as well as kshatriya for the same people it has actually unfortunately given an opportunity to uh, you know to some detractors the into saying that uh, these two are different people and they are delinked not in continuity meaning rajputs is not equal to kshatriyas that's what they, that's what they try to portray but uh, like i said already facts tell us differently uh, but then why is it that in medieval age the term rajput became more popular in usage than kshatriya that's a valid question why have these two terms so what happened was that in the late ancient and early medieval centuries three things have happened simultaneously number one crystallization of the jati vyavastha okay son does what the father does a uh, son gets what the father gets like land the position from the state you know your father was such and such dignitary you also become such and such dignitary the same way then there were external invasions in the north and west of india in form of uh, huns and then the arabs so these also sent some jolts in the society as well as the administrative framework right. feudalism came up there was delegation of power decentralization so in the psychological brunt of these invasions and their consequences the importance of lineage grows manifold the third thing that was happening was that buddhist influence at that time among the kshatriyas uh, it was creating a kind of uh, a friction or should i say a segregation among you know the kshatriyas so the non buddhist kshatriyas they as part of a reaction they, uh, they had a need to assert a separate identity from the buddhist kshatriyas so in this whole backdrop okay of these myriad factors uh, colliding at the same time you would see that the term rajput gains more currency than the word kshatriya and the trick that these people play these days is to twist this particular scenario in a very subtle way and instead of saying that the term rajput became more popular than kshatriyas at such and such time what they'll do is they'll distort and say that rajputs as a people themselves came on the scene at such and such time so that's the trick that they play so that that's what has really uh, happened and there is no no basis uh, for for these uh, you know assumptions it's just right? so very, the, yeah. the, the word is assumption yeah. they they are just assuming things you know uh, right. they are not they are not going into the etymology or, or you can say the origin yeah. and neither they are referring to you know some important scriptures you know where where there is a usage of these words you know interchangeably as yeah. in in lot money yeah. shirts or pranas okay right uh, so i mean we 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 don't have any reasons to even you know assume that uh, there is a discontinuity see you you, you don't have any sele- selective epidemics of which have wiped out all the ancient kshatriyas and then some aliens come in and drop the rajputs who were exactly like those kshatriyas right. same beliefs and values same modus operandi so yeah. there is just no basis yeah go on right 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 absolutely so uh that that's an amazing description of uh, the word rajput and its origins sir uh so moving on to the next part and about the samrat prithviraj chauhan so what we know is that prithviraj chauhan comes from chahamand dynasty uh if i am correctly pronouncing it <laughs> please do correct me 
so uh, what are the origins of this particular dynasty chahamana Chah- dynasty uh so the dynasty's name is the dynasty's name is chahaman that, that's the original word and again as part of upper branch it it became chauhan okay so that, that's the chain now chahaman was the name of an individual uh who who is considered as the uh, progenitor of this clan the the mool purush of the vansh okay so if you look at the early history of the chauhans both the epigraphic as well as the poetic literature because much of our literature is in poetic form so the yeah the literature as well as epigraphy they both confirm that chahaman was the progenitor of the clan okay so now comes the timing where is the uh, origin or you know at what time was this person and which place was he so chahaman's origin is in the uh, first half of 6th century ad uh, where he is seen as a contemporary of the uh, olikar uh, clan which was uh, posted in malwa right so so what happened was that around 528 ad by that time the gupta empire was gone right so there were huns in india and uh, the olikars of malwa were fighting with the huns so that uh, a decisive battle took place in 528 ad okay in which the olikars were victorious but if you check the political geography of that region you would find that the uh, area where chahaman has been located by the entire uh, early chauhan uh, historical sources yeah it, it it's central rajasthan the sambhar ajmer area okay and it lies exactly between the regions of huns and the olikars so if there is any kind of conflict it's just not possible for the chauhans to skip it okay so that that's one part of how they become relevant now if you want to fix his time accurately uh, you'll have to take help of the bharuch copper plate inscription uh, it's uh, it belongs to a chauhan feudal chief under the pratihar uh, kingdom so it's dated to mid 8th century ad so this guy gives a family tree of six generations okay and if you take an average of 25 years per generation that's how typically historians go 25 to 30 years average per generation you'll reach around 600 ad okay now this family tree begins with someone named vajradam so that's not chahaman right so from vajradam to chahaman again you'll have to dial back a few generations where you reach at the start of 6th century ad okay now how do you confirm that chahaman was fighting the huns so that will take help of prithviraj vijay which is an authentic source of chauhan history up to 12th century ad so prithviraj vijay mahakavyam says that chahaman uh, his father virochan and his brother dhananjay they all fought against malichas okay now malicha means someone who who doesn't belong to the uh, vedic or the arya strata of of uh, society okay. right so after chahaman then gradually over the next centuries you'll see that many branches of the chauhan clan uh, rose up in various parts of north india gujarat rajasthan delhi haryana parts of np parts of up so yeah that's how those kingdoms rose yeah okay uh, that's an interesting description of uh, chahaman dynasty and then it looks like you know they were the they were the ones who basically you know always fought the invaders and uh, and successfully with huns 
you know they they defeated them and huns were again pushed back though though huns were you know kept attacking the bharat versha of that time so uh, to continue sir when does prithviraj chauhan comes into picture when does he rises as an important uh, factor in india's history so for that we'll have to fly to the second half of 12th century ad right so there was a, a chauhan kingdom operating from its capital ajmer uh, there were actually more than one chauhan kingdoms but uh, this was in in particular uh, the most powerful chauhan kingdom so its king was at that time initially it was vigraraj chauhan the fourth uh, who who by the way has a love story of his own okay. uh, most people don't know about it he he was the elder uncle of prithviraj chauhan and uh, very versatile personality uh, as good patron of arts as he was a brilliant warrior and all that so prithviraj was born in patan gujarat which was the capital of of solanki kingdom and who were the solankis or how were they related to prithviraj uh, solankis were the maternal native of his father so someshwar chauhan's mother kanchan devi Uh, was from uh, uh, this uh, Solanki kingdom uh, of Patan. Yeah. So Prithviraj was born in 1162 to 3 AD. I personally tend to prefer 63 AD because it it uh, works better with the events which are happening around him. So then, first six years, this whole family, including his father, they spent in the uh, Patan region. And uh, then what happens is that one by one, you know, all the contenders for ajmer throne they are either dead or out of scene for some reason and eventually the nobles would invite uh, someshwar to take over because the throne was empty so that's how they migrate to ajmer and uh, so th- this is from where he rises then uh, after some time um, around 677 ad uh, you would see that someshwar chauhan passes away uh, unexpectedly and uh, a young prithviraj chauhan was made the uh, king he has his uh, rajyatilak so from there he uh, so this guy was just 14 15 years old when this happened when he was given the kingdom and initially for few years he was under the supervision of elders his ministers the prime minister kadambavas his mother but gradually he wriggled out of that control and um, so he was pretty busy uh, i mean initially he had a succession battle to fight with his cousins then aghori came in uh, for gujarat invasion so he wanted to fight there but he was suppressed he was overruled uh, being a minor as well as uh, you know he, he was new on the throne so he he wanted to fight but uh, you know prudency or policy whatever you want to call it his supervisors said no n- not now but anyway so after that gradually he he took over control of the kingdom and uh, from there on he led some expansive campaigns uh, around the country so uh, the first was against the badanaks who were around uh, a bit south to the uh, machara region uh so i think i think this this particular part where you said that you know like when when mohammad ghori first invaded uh, gujarat uh mm-hmm. and during that time you know he wanted to fight prithviraj chauhan wanted to go into that battle but couldn't i think this information is very new for me 
this this is this has not been mentioned in any of the sources i guess you know which we read on internet or maybe you know in legends which we know about rajkumar so this is a bit interesting you know that from 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 the start prithviraj chauhan was kind of uh, you know a very uh, bit of decisive i would say and uh, and that also shows that he kind of uh, realized that you know we we just can't uh, have these invasions happening right uh, uh from from the from, from the western part of the world basically as you said that you know he was uh, he was expanding his kingdom and he was operating from ajmer i guess uh, he, ajmer ajmer was basically an ajmeru is this correct so is this is this is this information correct that Aj- ajmer was called ajmeru during those times that's right yes, yes. Okay. so uh, the, there was a, uh, another king in the uh, first half of 12th century Uh, one of his ancestors his name was uh, ajarat chauhan so he what he did was basically he moved his capital from around sambhar to uh, ajmer uh, that that's the reason it is so i mean ajmer already had a, a small settlement uh, kind of a thing it's not that he came in at at you know uh, at at something which uh, which had no settlement and started from zero but yes if it, it wasn't a capital or a city so that that part was his uh, contribution as well as the taragad fort uh, at the which is overlooking the pass in the aravnis got it got it sir so so as you said he was expanding his kingdom pitura uh, chauhan and quite ambitious also it is said that he also attacked gujarat too he he fought he fought in gujarat too. can can we know uh, in brief you know about this battle who was the king in gujarat and which dynasty was ruling gujarat and and whether uh, that particular battle was uh, who who won that battle uh, can can we know that sir so prithviraj's uh, clash with the solankis in gujarat it uh, see what happened was that uh, the uh, at that time the solanki kingdom uh, was ruled by uh, ajay ajayraj solanki ajayraj or ajaypal i think mm-hmm. so his his spouse uh, which is uh, naiki devi you might have heard the name uh, she was uh, so there are two theories one of them is that she was the daughter of the chandel king of kalenjar uh, named as uh, parmardin parmardi chandel so sometime after 1182 83 ad i guess uh, around that time prithviraj uh, he he led an expansive campaign into the kingdom of parmardi chande it's also called uh, jajak bhukti that, that region so in that uh, swift campaign he seems to have grabbed a part of his uh, you know kingdom on a temporary basis okay for for a few years at most or most likely it was just an incursive raid where he forced the king to come to some terms and then he uh, retracted but that campaign ended abruptly which is ratified by multiple sources and the circumstances afterwards why so the reason was that when prithviraj was you know almost humiliating parmardi chandel in that campaign his daughter opened up a front uh, toward the chauhan border to relieve the pressure from her father and that front was opened around the uh, jaisalmer osia area 
uh, which you can we, we can confirm with the inscriptions as well yeah i have visited uh, and, i visited osi right right so uh, there if uh, there, there were some inscriptions which were installed by jagdev pratihar he was the war general of uh, the uh, queen naiki devi so it was a solanki campaign to relieve the pressure of uh, from her uh, father so quickly prithviraj had to turn back obviously but then he decided to settle the scores and he was like okay these guys have you know attacked me in the rear so i must retaliate and that's when prithviraj leads a night attack on the uh, abu uh, kingdom of parmas why on the abu kingdom of parmas because see uh, it was some kind of a policy followed by the indian kingdoms that the strong kingdoms i mean it's not explicitly stated but based on circumstantial evidence or what we see it's just an inference if you notice small kingdoms would have uh, you know bigger kingdoms would have smaller kingdoms between them as buffers of sometimes okay so the chauhans of ajmer and the solankis of gujarat between them were uh, you know that that region was straddled by smaller kingdoms there were as uh, there was nadol kingdom of chauhans a different branch a different family of chauhans then there was the abu kingdom of parmas so he attacked that front of the uh, solanki confederation so there were vassals of solankis only so he led that night attack that was repelled then after that prithviraj did some better preparations and again there was a conflict around nagor okay and if you if you look at the following years it was a, a phase of uh, sporadic wars okay uh, on and off there were frequent conflicts you know so that was happening and then uh, something changed very fundamentally shahabuddin gauri acquires the region of lahore he had been you know acquiring regions throughout the modern pakistan region in, in the previous years but the moment he finished off the ghaznavi dynasty and completely you know takes off uh, punjab in his uh, in his control uh, it changed things fundamentally now shahabuddin gauri a very powerful uh, ruler was the direct neighbor of prithviraj chauhan on the northwest that changed a lot of things for prithviraj and he he wasn't a fool to not realize that what he does immediately is despite of having an upper hand on the uh, solankis which the solankis themselves have acknowledged in their sword yeah prithviraj still inks a peace treaty with the solankis oh. then after the demise of his elder uncle vigraraj chauhan who was actually uh, from a different uh, queen Uh, of uh, uh, arnaraj uh, his ancestor so they were like basically cousin uncle and that sort of this you know a, a different division in the family so not really at very good terms with each other so after vigraraj chauhan fourth had died the tomers uh, so the, he was basically he, his love marriage uh, of vigraraj chauhan fourth was with the uh, tomer princes of delhi desal devi so when prithviraj's family someshwar and prithviraj were ruling the someh uh, vigraraj chauhan family was like a contestant for the throne okay mm-hmm. so then the tomers were supporting the sons of vigraraj chauhan to take over ajmer so naturally there was friction with the tomers meaning after vigraraj chauhan the throne of ajmer did not like the throne of delhi for political reasons 
but you notice in both the battles of the rhine tomers were fighting shoulder to shoulder with chauhans what oh. happened what happened was prithviraj chauhan you know repairing his relations with the tomers as well the point i'm trying to make is he had realized that there was a huge huge threat coming up on the horizon and he had to make amends in terms of his surroundings and his political situation so that he can handle that threat right. so when we say that he didn't our kings didn't realize they were only bothered about big vijay some kind of a foolish you know the, the childish thing they were running after and they were not aware of the militia threat and all that's not true if you analyze their actions true But, yeah absolutely and and i've seen documentaries and you know i've read many things and usually you know people have this tendency of saying that you know when prithviraj chauhan was rising he 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 gained lot many enemies uh, but when we listen to this uh, and when it comes to the factual narrative it is something different that prithviraj himself realized that i can't fight this major invasion if it happens which he was expecting without uh, you know amending the ways or you know having this uh, amenable relationships with 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 the other other rajput clans right and and this particular thing where you said that tomar tomars were fighting shoulder to shoulder with the chohans in in the in the battle of tarain so sir you know before before going on to this uh, invasion by mohammad of ghor and and the two battles of tarain there is this famous story you know which always comes up <laughs> about prithviraj chauhan and especially from uh, uh, prithviraj rasu which is said to be written by his friend uh, chand bardai about this uh, whole love story of prithviraj chauhan with with the princess of kannauj sanyogita and then there is also a story which talks about that he had lot of issues with with the ruler of kannauj jaychandra or you can say jaychand and it's like you know this particular name jaychand has become synonymous to a traitor and whenever you know someone wants to give an example about the inner enemies of of our country today or the traitors today they always refer to you know jaychand or jaychand jaychand one this desh ko haraya hai so uh, I, i i would really request you to throw some light on this whether this is true or you know was jaychand kind of uh, helped gori to you know to to repulse prithviraj uh, what happened what what exactly is the is the history or what what exactly the sources tells about this uh, i'll first take the sanyogita part yeah so the the, the story comes out of uh, prithviraj raso okay this this love story is not mentioned anywhere else oh. so raso tells us that uh, so that prithviraj uh, was you know it was sanyogita who appealed that i would be would not be marrying anybody else so you take me uh, you know take me with you so that's when prithviraj decided that okay i'll i'll take her away otherwise she would be married to somebody else against her wishes and all of that so then that's when he basically barges into the rajasuya yagya of jaitan takes her away and you know he, he just sprints off and uh, his uh, his uh, a select group of nobles uh, samantas etc and officers which were there with him few hundred of them uh, they 
kept on you know they they were the rear guard of his retreat and they kept fighting off the chasing army of uh, jaichan uh, okay so that's one now uh, what's the problem with this the problem is first of all to believe this let's look at what exactly prithviraj raso is or when is it now prithviraj raso uh, is dated to roughly 400 years after the events that it narrates okay so its genesis is placed somewhere in the second half of 15th century ad but the bulk of narrative that it comes up with that has shown up in the mainstream only in the second half or uh, at best you can say first half of the 16th century right so because it even makes uh, startling predictions that uh, you know uh, there is a date given uh, somewhere around panipat battle only uh, it makes a prediction a future prediction that at such and such time the king of mewar will tie up and you know defeat the sultan of delhi now uh-huh. okay. uh, in the, the 12th century the king of mewar was you know the ruler of a very small kingdom mewar hadn't you know really rose back to the prominence that we know about yeah. until the 14th 15th 16th centuries mm-hmm. but the best part is that the time that time that the raso is talking about is the time of the panipat battle where rana sanga was expected to hope to have defeated babur the, the expectation was that he would be able to overcome babur zahiruddin babur so there is no way the, the bard of uh, raso would have known about this event uh, which was to happen 400 years later okay that the point that i'm trying to make is that this particular part of raso if not the whole raso this particular part was written sometime around the panipat battle which is how the bard would know that such a thing is happening or has happened so accordingly he is given that prediction okay so that was a bit about raso i, I just wanted to let our uh, listeners realize of how far back after the events is raso written and it's not written by just one person a lot of people have interpolated stuff into raso yeah. so that's one problem that raso is a very very late text and a lot of things that it says they do not get any corroboration or rather they run really opposite to the uh, trail of facts which the other sources other sources provide us so that's one problem the second problem is um so th- there is a uh, a very vague reference in the contemporary text called uh, prithviraj vijay mahakavya mm-hmm. where it says that uh, uh, you know prithviraj is shown as uh, being really you know having a sort of a pressure being attracted to some heavenly nymph an apsara uh, he, he was looking at her painting in the royal gallery of his uh, one, one of his palaces Okay. this event is uh, according to the narration in prithviraj vijay mahakavyam if you look at events and if you try to pinpoint okay this narration is belonging to which year it comes around 1178 ad soon after the invasion of shahabuddin ghori the first invasion so he is attracted to this heavenly nymph that's when the, the poet of uh, prithviraj vijay mahakavyam he comes in and i don't quite remember it was him or some other poet they tell him that uh, because prithviraj is really attracted towards that heavenly nymph whose uh, portrait he was looking at in the gallery so they tell him that uh, sir you don't worry 
uh, this heavenly nymph has taken you know an avatar she has uh, come to this earth to be with you and she has taken birth in a city and the words are nak nadi tak sthit nak nadi is ganga so uh, at the bank of ganges in a city this uh, heavenly heavenly nymph has taken birth to be with you now a uh, couple of historians like uh, shri dashrat sharma have connected this with the uh, kannauj uh, princes or kashi that, that was the original capital of gaharwal uh, 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 king so they say that this must be sanyogata because they say it's on the ganga uh, coast uh, uh, the, the banks of ganga so this must be uh, the sanyogata who has taken birth to be with you now uh, problem with this particular connection is see the this kind of uh, attraction towards sanyogata revealing of the if we assume it is sanyogata revealing of the identity to prithviraj that this lady has come in and she she is there such and such such and such so prithviraj knows who she is when is it happening 1178 ad right if you look at the narrative of raso according to that the love affair between prithviraj and sanyogata happens between the two battles of tarain okay uh, so between prithviraj's victory and his defeat that's when he meets sanyogata he carries her away and he marries her and all of that if somebody had known about you know this this lady in 1178 ad how is it that the whole affair is happening 13 years later in early 1190s doesn't add up right so what i have done in the book is accordingly see i i don't believe in sh- shoving down my conclusions down the throats of my you know my readers on the minds uh, if it if it's half baked data so what i did was i, I provided the facts uh, that uh, this is how it is you know theorized or it has proposed that such a thing happened and this is why i believe it is you know it shouldn't have happened but uh, i have not taken a conclusion that okay this did not happen at all or this happened at all i left it to the wisdom of my readers they can form their own conclusions so anyways so that was about sanyogita when prithviraj chauhan and sanyogita were sort of running away uh, in that uh, event he had abducted her and he was retreat, retreating to his kingdom uh, at that time the gaharwal army which was chasing them once this uh, duo had arrived at their kingdom the chasing army it, it stopped and they went back mm-hmm. what happened after that was for the wedding of prithviraj and sanyogita jaychand the father of sanyogita had sent dowry and other ritualistic uh, belongings the nectar whatever he was supposed to uh, send as uh, father of the bride he did that now if he has done that for prithviraj and sanyogita wedding it's highly unlikely that the same person would hold such a diabolical grudge towards prithviraj that it would turn into a, a very bitter enmity that's that's one absolutely point number 2 uh the kingdoms of prithviraj chauhan and jaychand gaharwal did not share a border okay mm-hmm. uh so like, like i said initially the the stronger kingdoms were in a habit of uh, keeping 
smaller kingdoms between them as buffers so that it reduces the chances of a serious friction or a conflict so the same was the case between prithviraj and jaychand gaharwal you would see that uh, if you come from the top there was tomas okay and then there is the kingdom of uh, uh, the bhadanaks and kachapghats of gwalior Yeah. So they they were straddling the area between Prithviraj and Jaychand. So there was no direct contact or sharing of a border, which could create a very healthy chance of a major conflict. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's very very unlikely. Unlikely, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, how can I? I mean, if, if if there is a buffer, you can say if there is a ruler who lies, you know, miles ahead of my border, and he's not creating any kind of disturbances, also. you know i might attack the kingdom if that kingdom is kind of you know instigating a rebellion or you know disturbing my buffer state or maybe you know having i mean propagating the disturbances near my border uh, then i have a right to attack or kind of have and you know maybe have this whole enmity uh, with him or uh, so yeah this this actually makes sense if you know that so 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 i have a question uh-huh. so ha uh-huh. ha how does how does you know so was uh, the enmity between jaychand and prithviraj from where so i think it it is mentioned in prithviraj raso right yeah It's come from no no I, I yeah, yeah. I, i was actually going to come to that part only yeah yeah, yeah. so so uh, yeah okay i'll start um so if you so now that we have sort of concluded Uh, in a way that prithviraj and jaychand nmp does not have any basis or sound foundation let me clear out the profile of jaychand himself now we will we'll focus on jaychand now yeah. because i mean it, it to, to to my uh, in in my view my personal opinion is that the characterization of maharaja jaychandra gaharwal as a traitor is one of the biggest travesties that has happened in the indian history because uh, it's not only a, a big wound but it's a self inflicted wound it, okay so it is us who still keep on clinging to that myth and we propagate it amongst ourselves that's the saddest part yeah, anyway i'll i'll i'll, I'll uh, start with the uh, you know factual rebuttal so if you look at the gaharwal ancestors of jaychand and their uh, you know their vassals and all of that uh, their inscriptional evidence one after the other there's a flurry of evidence which tells you about their conflict and resistance against the muslim invasions multiple generations okay they even applied a tax on their populace known as turushk dand to fight off these invasions and then once the prithviraj chauhan and tomar confederation was formed and they were you know uh, posing a, a decent defense on that northwestern frontier uh, jaychand had reasons to you know it had an indirect uh, impact on the kingdom of jaychand he had lesser threat perception now so he waved off the turkish dand when he became king so that's that that's what was happening and then if you look at the contemporary islamic sources the, the farsi sahitya uh, according to them jaychand was uh, uh, you know the biggest uh, the most powerful hindu king of aryavarta at that time according to them the biggest kingdom 
as well as an arch enemy of islam or muslim powers okay that's the characterization of jachand according to muslim sources <laughs> then you come to the <laughs> neutral sources the neutral sources are like uh, purush pariksha of vidyapati he was no friend of jachand he was no enemy of jachand or gaharwals or hindus or muslims he's just a random you know a scholar a neutral scholar and he's writing something Yeah. not related to these powers directly so he similarly says that jachand was fighting the muslim rulers then comes our favorite prithviraj raso so let, let's bust this myth prithviraj raso does not vilify jachand at all on the contrary prithviraj raso praises jachand for putting shahabuddin ghori in fear okay so that that that's the uh, truth of prithviraj raso despite being a text written in glory of prithviraj chauhan it is praising maharaja jachand that you have conquered so many kingdoms and you have put shahabuddin ghori in fear so that begs a question where did this myth such a nasty myth come from yeah absolutely right? this is so nasty exactly this, this <laughs> totally uh, i mean this this just goes against uh, you know the this 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 factual history and uh, see i mean you have myths but but this is this this, this is this is a falsification i mean this is totally you are kind of you know running down uh, the personality of a particular king Who has never done a thing, you know, which which he has been accused to. He he has actually, on the contrary, done very good things. Now, if I'll take a contemporary example, if you see the Ram Janmabhoomi case, which is going on uh, recently, uh, one of the main evidences which was helpful in the settlement of the case in our favor was the uh, inscription found at the Tretakke Thakur Temple. and the man who installed you know who under whom this inscription was done and it was written that okay this temple has been built for shri ram and all of that that guy was none other than maharaja jachand gaharwal okay so he has you know contributed positively and on the contrary in, instead of being grateful for that we have been okay anyways so i don't want to use any strong words okay uh, so i'll i'll come to the uh, root of this myth okay the root of this myth lies in the towards the end of 16th century ad when the favorite mughal bard of the mughal emperor akbar mr abul fazl was writing ayne akbari ayne akbari yes so abul fazl yes. <laughs> sorry Yeah, Abul. Yeah, uh, Abul. Abul first. I know about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what happened was uh, because uh, Akbar's, uh, you know, this thing. It was in uh, capital was in Delhi. Uh, Delhi had actually been a very important power center in the north for quite some time since the Turkish uh, Sultanates, right? Uh, for 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 a few centuries. Uh, so. Uh, what happened was that uh, he had to narrate the history of Delhi, Abul Fazl, before Akbar. So he had to come uh, come from some you know few centuries backwards. That okay, such and such ruler was there, then this guy came, then this guy came. So he had a problem. Uh, his problem was that uh, uh, when Shahabuddin Ghori came in, 
and acquired uh, rule in India, that uh, transition of power, because it, it was a very important event, right? So Hindu rule in a large part of North India and supposedly around Delhi, uh, it ended and a Muslim rule began. So that important transition, uh, Abul Fazl had to cover it and while covering it, he had to make sure that no you know serious blame comes on the muslim powers so he was actually forced to defend shahabuddin gauri at that time uh, in a way trying to tell ki nahi hum log zabardasti aake nahi ghuse the aapke logon ne idhar bulaya tha humko to hum log aaye the so this narrative was built by mr abu fazl he was the first guy to have written that Jaychand invited Shahabuddin Ghori to come and attack India or Prithviraj Chauhan and as expected because he is 400 years away from the events you demand his source i mean even if it's you sir let's say you are telling me that such and such thing happened you know 400 years away so i'll tell you okay you are standing here you are explaining an event which is 400 years back in the past what is your source I mean it's a logical demand right 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 abul fazl doesn't give any source while saying so mm-hmm. how could he give there is no source there is no basis so he was just being a defensive bard trying to you know put up an official pro islam pro muslim ruler narrative that uh, you know that that important transition we didn't trust him we we were just invited you only invited us and we came and so in order to defend the muslim rulers at that important transition of power mr abul fazl invented this myth and surprisingly raso's narrative you know it, it sort of completes or it comes in a healthy state around the same time and then there's another text surjan charit okay that also covers a lot of chauhan history both these texts raso as well as surjan charit they don't mention anything like that despite being created around the same time as uh, aini akbari by abul fazl they don't mention anything like that that jaychand invited you know uh, gauri or anything like that now the last point that i want to make is if somebody had done such a nasty thing uh, it doesn't escape public memory i mean you can destroy things in sources you can distort history text and everything uh, things don't skip the public memory easily right now the name jaychand does not have any negative connotation till british era if you look at the british gazetteers people are people are very easily and you know aram say good well well to do people are using the name jaychandra if you look at the historical sources of late medieval era of marwad and rajasthan again jaychand is being eulogized uh, as a great ruler so there is no negative connotation to this name so so it's just it's utterly impossible to have happened whichever way you want to look at it yeah no no absolutely absolutely i mean the way things are said and in fact you know lot many uh, big politicians to you know kind of use the name of jaychand uh, you know which is synonym to the traitor you know uh, for the country and this is this is actually a travesty and this is this is a huge huge uh, you can say injustice to a particular king who has done lot many things for his, for 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 his subjects and also you know ruled with 
uh, uh, I mean, kind of a great ruler which he was, and I think it is important to dispel this because uh, I see, you know, when when you are on Twitter, you see lot many uh, people, you know, throwing jibes at Jaichand. The, the the we have to dispel this, and as you said, this comes from uh, Aine Akbari, which was written by the Bard Abul Fazal, or you know, kind of a confidant of Akbar, which he was, to show that uh, you know, just like just like British. Uh, said that we have came we have came to india to civilize you guys so it's like you know muslims have also uh, came to, to kind of uh, for the betterment of uh, for for you people only right uh, that kind of a thing but i but i do hope you know lot many i hope that many historians who are currently you know practicing in rajasthan or you know they, they should they should come up with a fierce rebuttal regarding this and they should kind of uh, i hope they'll publish an article they'll write something in newspapers so that people will know who jackson was and he was definitely you know was not a traitor or you know kind of an enemy as you know he is being made out to be uh, of uh, prithviraj chauhan 